Welcome to Peak True Crime Case Notes The Baker Boy of Repton After some time off over the summer, the podcast's back and I'm really looking forward to sharing some more dark tales and dastardly deeds from Derbyshire and the Peak District. There's going to be a slight change to how I do this, which I think will improve things greatly. Primarily, it's about the regularity of publishing. The amount of work that goes into researching and writing each episode, then doing location visits, recording and editing is huge, or at least huge for someone who's as bone idle as I am. And as such, I'm not managing to release the podcast quite as frequently as I'd like. Also, there's some cases that, at the moment at least, I'm not able to find out quite as much about as I'd like. With this in mind, I'll be only putting out one hour-ish long episode a month, but alongside it, almost every week, I'll be releasing a shortened case note episode. These will be a more brief telling of a story which, for any number of reasons, qualifies for a more light-touch presentation. The case note episodes may be returned to in the future for an expanded full-length episode. There may just be an interesting little gem of a case that's best suited to this shorter format. Whatever the reason, the point is to tell more stories more regularly. Thank you for your support with the podcast. It's genuinely appreciated. So, make sure you subscribe so as not to miss an episode, review where you can, and follow the link in the show notes to all the Peak True Crime social media. Follow me there, say hello, or simply relax and enjoy this first Peak True Crime case notes. The Baker Boy of Repton. It was a lovely day when I was in Repton covering the last episode, and as a result, I went for a little stroll, as I may want to do since I started the podcast, around the graveyard of St Winston's Church. Adjacent to the school, there's been a church on the site for centuries. Part of the building dates back to medieval times, when the village was the capital of the old Saxon kingdom of Mercia. For a TV contextualisation of this period of history, pop onto Netflix and watch The Last Kingdom. I was wandering in the sun, looking at the gravestones, when I found one that caught my eye and my interest. It's not much higher than my knee and shaped from a flat base along a curve on either side to a point at the top not unlike the windows of the church itself. Above the inscriptions inset in a carved circle is a representation of a tree with five branches separated from the trunk. Four of the branches are long and strong while the fifth is cut short nothing more than a stump. The inscription reads in the memory of Samuel Marshall, who unfortunately fell victim to a barbarous assassin on February the 14th, 1786, in the 21st year of his age. It's followed by a short poem. By murderous hand my thread of life was broke, dreadful the hour and terrible the stroke. Repent, thou wicked spoiler of my youth. Behold me here, 
consider parents both. See from thy bloody hand what woes arise, while calls for vengeance pierce the lofty skies. Thou too must suffer, thou though escapes the law, for God is just, and will avenge my cause. It's pretty chilling stuff for a gravestone. But the story it introduced me to is one that I think fits the bill of the podcast to a T. It's the murder of a 21-year-old baker who was found dead on the roadside outside Repton in 1786. Samuel Marshall had been delivering bread and cakes to the villages around the area. Over the course of the day, it was thought he'd have about six or seven pounds in takings, and while on his way back to Repton, he was set upon by a number or a singular robber. The Derby Mercury wrote that he was found at about seven o'clock by one William Mountford, a labouring man of Tinknell, who was passing by and saw the unhappy youth lying on the ground near the navigation bridge at Willington, and his body mangled in a frightful manner. The report continues. He'd received a violent blow on the head and also a deep cut behind his left ear, which seems to have been done with a penknife or some sharp instrument. They'd cut his throat in such a manner that a piece of his flesh hung down from his chin but had not penetrated his windpipe. His pockets were turned out, the contents taken. As soon as possible, the neighbourhood was alarmed. The body removed to Repton, and a warrant and a hue and cry issued by a worthy magistrate. Persons were dispatched to search the most suspected places. The most suspected places? It sounds a little to me like the usual suspects, be that of the Casablanca or Kaiser Sose variety. But hue and cry? Well... As well as being a Scottish band of the 80s, with a love of rolling keyboards, a short back and sides and a video that interpreted the labour of love through the medium of milk, in terms of the Darbury Mercury, a hue and cry was an early form of community-based law enforcement, relying on the collective effort of the people to maintain order and apprehend wrongdoers. If an individual witnessed a crime, or was unfortunate enough to be the victim of a crime, they'd raise a hue and cry, loudly shouting or making noise to alert others nearby. The call signalled that a crime had occurred and that assistance was needed to capture the perpetrator. If that hue and cry was called by someone of standing in the community, like in this case a magistrate, then the word would be passed further and wider. The community members who had heard the hue and cry, be it local or regional, would be near obliged to join the pursuit, making it difficult for the criminal to escape and increase the chances of capture. In the case of Samuel's murder, with the crime having been committed with enough time for the perpetrator to escape the scene undetected, the delayed response proved no less committed. Back to the Derby Mercury. Handbills were printed and dispersed, offering a reward of over £40 over and above what is allowed by the Act of Parliament, and every means used to bring the perpetrator of this inhuman deed to condign, meaning well-deserved or justified, punishment. But, notwithstanding that several had been taken upon suspicion, 
yet after examination they had been discharged, nothing substantial appearing to incriminate them. It was a couple of days later that any progress with the search for those responsible was reported again in the pages of the Derby Mercury. On Thursday night, at about ten o'clock, a young man named James Wielden, of the village of Russelton, near Burton-on-Trent, was brought to the county jail, charged with a violent suspicion of having committed the murder near Willington of the body of Samuel Marshall, Baker. He, that day, underwent an examination of about eight hours before Sir Robert Burden Bart, one of His Majesty's Justices of the Peace, when a very minute inquiry was made, and that with the strictest impartiality, and, it appearing by many corroborating circumstances, that the above young man might personally be suspected of perpetrating the horrid deed, he was committed for trial at the next assizes. Updating its readers on the details of the case, the paper reported that one particular we must not omit, which is that a blacksmith's hammer was found near the spot it was perpetrated in, having, it is supposed, been the instrument used on the barbarous occasion, and thrown over the hedge immediately after the murder. On the discovery of his hammer, several persons were dispatched to Rolleston, and upon inquiry the blacksmith missed the hammer, and afterwards it came out on the oath of this man that he had lent the hammer to Wielden several previous days to the murder. It's at this point the paper introduced an element of doubt in the mind of its readers. This circumstance the prisoner positively denies, saying he never borrowed a hammer from him and all his life. There are several other circumstances incriminating him, but far they may weigh in the views of the jury, time can only determine. By the 23rd of March, 1786 edition of the Derby Mercury, the story had moved on. James Wielden, charged with the murder of young Marshall, Baker of Repton, was acquitted after a hearing of nearly six hours. That's as far as the paper went, providing no detail at all as to the whys and wherefores of the court's decisions. And from there, the story of the gravestone came upon in the graveyard of St Winston's churchyard next to Repton School comes to a close. It wasn't until another article, this time in the Derby Advertiser, in 1971, that any light was shared on the mystery. And Mr H.J. Wayne wrote, The story has been handed down that the prisoner was acquitted largely due to an alibi in his favour sworn by a young woman he was about to marry, and also the refusal of the blacksmith to confirm his previous oath as to the identity of the hammer found near the scene of the crime. The young woman lived at Baron Trent, and, on the evening of the trial, she set out to meet a friend returning from Derby with news of the result. On hearing that Wielden had been acquitted, she manifested the wildest fury, her shrieks and cries betokening the influence of insanity. At last, having uttered one of the most appalling maledictions that has ever escaped human lips, she sank into a state of insensibility, which lasted for at least four hours. Further to the original story of the Derby Mercury, the advertiser reported that the suspect was seen visiting the grave of the young baker 
a great many times after the trial. Uncovering reports described in private diaries, the advertiser unearthed how Wielden would linger in the churchyard and gaze upon the gravestone of his victim. This account, from the archive as reported in 1971, explained a further aspect of the story which cast doubt on the original verdict of the court. Some time afterwards, Mr Chawner of Repton, an eminent practitioner who had given evidence as a medical witness at Wielden's trial and whose evidence bore strongly against him, was called upon at a late hour on a dark and tempestuous night by a stranger who requested him visit a patient whose name he'd not heard before and who resided at Meesham, near Ashby de la Zeus in north-west Leicestershire and whose case was said to be one of extreme urgency. The doctor got out of his jig and with the stranger as his guide undertook the long journey. He arrived at the village in due course and was admitted into a house where in a bed surrounded by drawn curtains on the ground floor lay his patient uttering loud and frequent groans. On pulling back the curtains the doctor beheld to his amazement the distorted features of the accused assassin of Samuel Marshall. He feared at first that he had been decoyed and it was the intention of the sick man to exact revenge on him for giving evidence at his trial. But it was all too evident that Wielden had no such intention. Indeed, was alarmed by the appearance of the doctor, who had been hastily summoned by a neighbour without Wielden's knowledge. Dr Chawner, after various attempts to give relief to the sufferer, gazed at him for some time, while a series of awful sensations passed through his mind. The solemn hour of midnight, the raging storm with vivid flashes of lightning, the deep bursts of thunder, the presence of a suspected murderer with what appeared to be a final moral struggle, with a rapidly approaching end, impressed upon the mind of the contemplator a picture of the terrible destiny that awaits the evildoer. I think there's little doubt that the report from 1971 paints a dramatic picture. A doctor, who testified against a suspected murderer, is called out on a stormy night to tend to him and pay witness to his demise. A patient, awaiting death as the sky above cracked and cried a storm of agony. Unfortunately, I'm not able to find any record of where or when Wielden died, or, for that matter, the source from which the 1971 article draws its tale. Now, it's not for me with limited knowledge of the case that I have, to draw conclusions from that. It's not for a bloke with a podcast to suggest that something that was written just over 50 years ago about a murder that took place in 1786 might not be 100% legitimate. And to be honest, why would I? The damnation, set in stone on the gravestone though, that God is just and will avenge my cause which was penned by the family of Baker Samuel Slater, if that were to be ultimately true, that God did avenge his cause. Well, as my dad always says, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? (laughs) 